You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I wanted to speak today about the unique characteristics of the Agve Nezer, Rabbi Avram Borenstein, I guess is how we would pronounce it in contemporary America, the late 19th century European posek and the first Rebbe of Sakachover. I guess that's how we would pronounce it as well. Um, he's known, of course, as the Avne Nezer um, after the posthumously published set of Chuvot. Um, but he's a fairly unique halachic authority. He was Hasidic Admor, a Rebbe in the classical sense, and an exceptionally widely accepted posek, who not only made it in the Hasidic Sach community, but became deeply ingrained in the halachic community everywhere, so that a hundred years after his passing, everybody from Rabbi Moshe Feinstein to Rabbi Ovadia Yosef is quoting the Avnei Nezer. Um, he's a well-known posek who exceeded his natural boundaries. Poskim who exceed their natural boundaries are always exceptionally interesting because they tell us something about what it takes to be part of the broader Torah community as a whole. Um, of course, um, uh, the Avne Nezer grew up in a Hasidic community. He was a close Talmud of the Kutzka Rebbe. Um, eventually, he becomes his son-in-law. Um, he eventually rises um, to become the Rebbe of Sakhachev, and he writes four or five volumes of Avne Nezer, depending on how you divide them. And he hands... Um, his rebbiness, if that's the right word, over to his son, the Shem Mishmuel, um, who becomes the second Sakachava Rebbe. Essentially, the dynasty ends in the Holocaust um, with vast amounts of unfinished potential. And although it is recreated in Israel after the war, after the war, it's a much smaller and much narrower. Hasidic community. Even the Avnei Nezer's son, the Shem Mishmuel, is a much more marginal figure, um, much more important in the Hasidic community than he is as a general posting. If you go on the Bar Ilan CD and search for citations to the Avnei Nezer, you see thousands and thousands of citations from an incredible variety of halachic authorities in the 20th century. Everybody's quoting the Avne Nezer. And there are three reasons that explain this. The first, and perhaps the most profound, is at some level, the Avne Nezer is the first modern posting. The Shilas that he deals with are modern. I don't mean a modern orthodox posting like Rabbi Soloveitchik. I mean, he's living distinctly already in the modern world. The enlightenment has come to him. Large numbers of Jews are not so religious. There's all sorts of modern industrial developments that he's aware of. Modern finance has come to his life. 
and he grapples with modern financial arrangements, you encounter two vote that deal with institutions that are now very much part of our world, but were not at all part of the world of the Chassam Sofer. Whether it's insurance or unions or many other developments of the late 19th and early, early 20th century because of where the Avni was positioned and his role in a variety of places, he was aware of these developments and he's frequently the first person to comment on how Halacha should view these modern institutions. Um, and so too, he becomes a focal point for a certain segment of the Hasidic community. If you just go on Wikipedia, sort of that reflects who I am and where I collect information. If you go on Wikipedia and type his name, it has a listing of all of his Talmidim. So many people interacted with his courtyard. He was a place an enormous number of Torah scholars went to get Shemush, to receive smicha, to interact with his magical approach to building community and asking shayus. He was clearly a center point of Eastern European religious Jewish life in his era. This is not just a reflection of how great his works were. This is a reflection on how dynamic his personality was and how magnetic and charismatic a halachic authority he was. Um, there have been many great Jewish law authorities who wrote works of profound importance, but who were themselves not charismatic figures. Um, but the Avnei Nezer not only was a great mind, he seems to have been a great personality um, that attracted followers, both little and great, who interacted with him in many, many, many ways. Um, like the Tzemach Tzedek Melubavitch of a half a century earlier, he became a court of people who interacted with him in an incredible variety of ways, and not just Hasidim. But many of the great halachic authorities of the generation after him spent time in the court of the Avnei Nezer doing shimush. I guess I want to start with one of the most profound, interesting, and religiously worthwhile observations of the Avnei Nezer found in his Egle Tal. And by the way, the Egle Tal is part of his greatness. He writes a standard work on Hilchel Shabbos that enters the canon of works on Hilchel Shabbos. Not Hasidic works on Hilchel Shabbos, but works on Hilchel Shabbos of every variety. He writes the Shmirat Shabbat Kehilchata of his generation. Shabbat works, by the way, it's worth noting, tend to have a shelf life. Exactly because observing Shabbat properly requires an interaction between the kitchen that you're living in and um, halacha, 
Um, Shabbos Svarim tend not to last forever because I have to explain how to use the oven that you're using and not just some oven. And of course, a book written about Hilchus Shabbos describing the kitchen in America in 1950 might be less useful than the kitchen in America in 1900 and less useful than the same book describing the kitchen in America in 2020, or never mind the kitchen in America in 2250, when the technology has dramatically changed. The Egle Tal was the Shmirat Shabbat Gel um, for the middle of the 19th century. He writes intensely about how to live and be an observant Jew in his time and his place. Of course, the practical observations of the Egletal in his time and his place don't resonate with us because we don't have coal-fired uh, heaters. But, but it's important to understand that he's a sufficiently accepted halachic authority that the Egletal becomes the standard work on Hilchot Shabbat used everywhere. But I actually want to talk about his wonderful introduction to the Egletal. The Avne Nezer observes in his introduction to the Egletal that he heard a mistaken attitude towards the study of Torah. We know now who he's referring to, but it's unimportant. But he observes that this mistaken attitude to the study of Torah says, if you're enjoying the study of Torah, then you're not really observing it lishma. Torah lishma, this view says, is made up of people who essentially study Torah because it's a mitzvah and get no personal joy out of the act. The Avne Nezer Egle Tal notes his complete and total disagreement with this view. He thinks, and I think that this becomes a very important contribution that he makes. Torah study is best done and most fruitfully done when it's done by people who profoundly enjoy it. And that the most fruitful study of Torah is found in the people who wake up every morning and say, I love learning. And I really, really, really enjoy studying Torah. And that while you might think that the doing of mitzvot that are joyful diminishes your reward for the mitzvah, the Avne Nezer is insistent that the fact that you feel an enormous joy when you're doing the mitzvah is part of the mitzvah and intrinsic in the study of Torah and furthermore, he seems to indicate that the people who study Torah in an unjoyful way will never be matzliach. This makes perfect sense to me. It always struck me as obviously so. I go to a dentist and the dentist tells me that he hates being a dentist, but he's doing it to earn a living. I think I find another dentist. I want to encounter Torah personalities who love what they do and enjoy it profoundly. The study of Torah is 
a mitzvah that has a component of joy to it. And everybody who becomes great in the study of Torah doesn't treat the study of Torah as a, a yoke, an all-machut There's no doubt that there are some mitzvot that we could readily describe as a yoke. The term all-machut shemayim is such a fascinating term because an all is an item that you put on an animal to direct it. It's not something you put on an animal to do with joy. It directs the animal to pull the plow when it would rather be dancing or eating. But the all machus shemayim is not directly applicable to the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, the Avnei Nezer says, because Torah study is accompanied by a deep joy from those who are studying it. I've always found this observation to deeply resonate. And anybody who's learned the Avnei Nezer sees, I don't know how to say this, he's smiling the whole time. He's enjoying writing. He's enjoying learning. He sees a magic in God's law. It's not something that he does with a level of uncomfortableness. And I can't recall a tshuva in which the Avne Nazar expressed a lack of comfortableness with the result. You never felt that he was dragged, kicking and screaming into a halachic position that he didn't like because the old Bachus Shemayim had been placed on him. Sometimes you saw from Rabbi Soloveitchik a sense of surrender to the will of the divine. The Rav was sometimes uncomfortable with halachic results, and yet he pressed people to obey them anyway, himself included. The, the Rav's famous speech about Mesorah talks about surrender to the will of the Almighty. Surrender is not a term that you found in the Avnei Nezer. The Avnei Nezer always felt that he was winning to the will of the divine and that he was implementing the will of the divine and he always did it with joy. That's itself sort of an important observation. People who surrender to the will of the divine all the time eventually simply surrender. And it's not a role model of incredible appealingness by halacha. The idea that what we do is we surrender to the will of a God that, whose results we don't like, who runs counter to our ethical observations, and that we wish we were free to do otherwise is an unappealing model of yahadut. You always sensed in the Avnei Nezer, not that. He never surrendered to the will of the divine, he joyfully carried out God's wishes, certain in the fact that whatever God wanted of us was right. And he went on studying joyfully without any fear that the wrong result was ever reached. There's nothing about Torah study that made him unhappy. I want to now focus on a few distinctly unique contributions the Avnei Nezer made, some of which really made it into halacha, 
um, some of which partially made it into halacha. And then I'm going to conclude by revisiting the question of Hasidic poskim in general. One of the Avnei Nezer's most interesting contributions to halacha, and maybe it's not uniquely his, but he's certainly among the first, is the idea of conditional fulfillment of mitzvot. Conditional fulfillment of mitzvot is somewhat counterintuitive. I'm going to do action X, and I'm going to say to myself, if X is a mitzvah, I will have fulfilled my mitzvah. If X is not a mitzvah, then I will not have fulfilled my mitzvah. The Avne Nezer first discusses this idea in his discussion of when should the afikomen be eaten? We all know that there are two famous views in the Gemara about when should the afikomen be eaten. The first is Rabbi Kiva, who holds that the proper time for Seder is all night. And then there's Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, who holds that the proper time to eat the afikomen is um, midnight. Most Rishonim adopt the view of Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, but the Rambam famously demurs and insists that um, one can fulfill the mitzvah of the Afikomen all night. Not only that, you get a sense from reading the Rambam that the Rambam thought it was a good thing to do Seder all night. So I can't, at first glance, fulfill both the view of the Rambam and the view of Tosis. If I have to eat my afikomen at midnight, then you know what happens? Seder ends. On the other hand, if I keep on Sedering all night and I eat the afikomen at the end, then I violated Tosis' rule. There's no chumra and kula here. There's two different deadlines. Along comes the Avne Nezer and proposes that this is a classic example of a conditional mitzvah. The Avne Nezer proposes as follows. A person should eat the afikomen. No, let me step back. A person should eat a piece of matzah at midnight, and they should stipulate in their head, or maybe even out loud, that if the halacha is like Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, then this piece of matzah is the afikomen. And they fulfill the mitzvah of eating the afikomen sometime before chatzos. And if the halacha is not like Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, then this piece of matzah is not the afikomen, and they will continue to observe the Seder like the Rambam and eat the afikomen later. I won't tell you that this is the first time anybody's ever invoked conditional observance of mitzvot, but it is the beginning of an important trend. The Avne Nezer adds a sense that the conditional fulfillment of mitzvot 
is a normative good thing that regularly should go in the toolbox of halachic authorities. Now, what's interesting about this example is if you reject the view of the Rambam and you adopt the view of the many others, then continuing to eat is a sin. But yet the Avne Nezer is comfortable um, using this idea of a conditional fulfillment of a mitzvah, even when the lack of fulfillment of the mitzvah is an Avera. You know that there's another famous example of this that people have struggled to find a source for. But I suspect that the source might in fact be this Avne Nezer. The Mishnah Brura proposes a solution to the Tefillin and Cholomoi dilemma that none of us use. Most of us either do or don't put Tefillin on Cholomoi. Some of us do, like I do. Some of us don't, like most people do. They don't put on Tefillin. But the Mishnah Brura doesn't adopt that view. What does the Mishnah Brura propose that you do? He says something that, as far as I can tell, nobody does. He says, you should put tefillin on, on cholamoid. And as you're putting your tefillin on on cholamoid, you should say to yourself, if the putting on of tefillin is a mitzvah, I'm fulfilling my mitzvah. And if the putting of tefillin on is an avera, then I'm not fulfilling the mitzvah at all, and it should be like nothing. But here's my question. How does this work? If the putting of tefillin on is an Avera, then you shouldn't put them on. But you see a resonant of the Avne Nezer in the Mishnah world, which is having the conditional intent to fulfill a mitzvah obviates even the alternative possibility that this conduct might even be improper. Now, of course, I recognize between you and me and those who listen in the future that nobody actually does the Avni Nezer's suggestion, I think. And nobody actually does the Mishnah Brewer's suggestion. But it reflects a certain approach to the fulfillment of mitzvot that's very fascinating and important. Uh, the Avne Nezer's idea here goes as follows. When I have a conditional mitzvah and the condition is not fulfilled, it's as if I didn't do the activity in total. The Mishnah Brura means and the Avne Nezer means that when I eat the matzah and I say, if this is the afikoman, then I'm fulfilling my mitzvah of afikoman. What he also means is if it's not the minimum, the last time for Afi Komen, then I'm doing nothing at all. Please pay no attention. Just like when the Mishnah Brewer says, if I'm putting on tefillin on Cholomoid and I don't need to, or worse, it's prohibited, it's as if I didn't put them on. That is an effective approach to dealing with situations in which one school of thought says, this is chiyuvi, this is obligatory. And another school of thought says, this is Avei This is absolutely prohibited. This idea of the Avnei Nezer is found in a variety of halachic authorities after him. I'm not directly aware 
of somebody who says it before him, although it would be an act of hubris on my part to say to you, and he's the first person um, to have said this. He might very well be the first person, but I, I lack the breadth of knowledge to make that kind of objective empirical claim. The Avde Nazar, of course, not only dealt with what I'll call technical nitty gritty issues, the Avde Nazar as well dealt with grander philosophical issues confronting his time and his place. You see this, by the way, um, in his Chuvot dealing with the resettlement of the land of Israel. The Avde Nazar is living through. Um, the first wave of resettlement of the land of Israel. And the Avne Nazar is a supporter. He's not an anti-Zionist. He's a supporter of the return to the land of Israel. And then um, he's an advocate of Jews settling in the land of Israel. When Ashoel asked him, sort of, how come the Rambam doesn't record the mitzvah of Yishuv Eretz Israel, of settling in the land of Israel, the Avne Nazar um, is adamant in his insistence that settling the land of Israel is obviously a mitzvah and and not just a mitzvah, but a grand and important mitzvah. He delves deeply into the question, and he's not content with just the uh, platitudes that are floating around in his time. He quotes a variety of sources to try to demonstrate what he thinks, and maybe what we think by now is obviously so, which is that there's a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel, and it's a significant and important mitzvah. And the Yishuv Eretz Israel that's running at his time, and let me add that's still running in our time, is a mitzvah rabba. He uses the phrase as equivalent to all other mitzvot, which is not uniquely his, but it certainly is a measure of support. And indeed, it's clear when you look at various parts of the Avnei Nezer that He's a sympathetic participant in the resettlement of the Jews in the land of Israel. He answers occasional shilas from the land of Israel, but more importantly, he generally shows um, a deep sympathy to the idea that the mitzvah of settling in the land of Israel is both in theory and in practice worthwhile. He's politely, resolutely, and distinctly sympathetic to those people who are settling in the land of Israel. You get a vibe from the Avne Nazar that he understands that the nature of Jewish life in Eastern Europe is more tentative than others perceive. He does not think he's living in a golden Medina and a perfect place. And many of his chuvot touch on 
matters relating to anti-Semitism and the complexity of religious life in Eastern Europe. You don't get the vibe that he thinks where they're living right now is where Jewish life is going to be for the next hundreds of years. He doesn't say specifically the future is in Israel, um, but he does a few different times in a few different shuvot indicate a lack of long-term stability in the Eastern European construct. He's not among those halachic authorities who thought um, that the end of the 19th century was the beginning of a golden time and a golden place um, in Eastern Europe. He sensed both the Haskalah coming with even greater force and more people abandoning religious life. And he even sensed the rise of anti-Semitism around him with all of the complexities of an anti-Semitic time. I don't mean to pretend that he's prescient and he saw the Holocaust, but it's clear that he recognizes that a shift is taking place as Jews move from Eastern Europe to Israel. And this could be the beginning of something greater. And he's somewhat sympathetic to that greatness. Um, nowhere, for example, in the Mishnah Brura, do you get any sense of um, the Yishuv, and certainly not in the Arach HaShulchan, both of whom are approximate contemporaries, do you get any hint of a sympathy to the Zionist adventure? Um, neither the Mishnah Brura nor the Arach HaShulchan were profoundly sympathetic um, to the idea of resettlement in the land of Israel. Um, maybe the Aruch HaShulchan was in theory sympathetic to it, but various times in various places indicate that his sympathy wasn't um, profound and important. And the Mishnah, of course, gives us no indications of any uh, sympathetic leanings towards the Zionist enterprise in the land of Israel as, at all. This is not true for the Avnei Nezer. The Avnei Nezer presciently realizes that the situation in Eastern Europe is tentative and that the settlement in the land of Israel could be a politically, practically good thing. And it's certainly, certainly he wants to emphasize it's a religiously good thing that in our hearts and minds, we need to acknowledge that the settlement in the land of Israel is a, a, a mitzvah rabbah, is the equivalent to all other mitzvot in the Torah, is the phrase he uses. Just realizing that reflects so well on um, how far into the future um, the Avnei Nezer could see. Some poskim are prescient. And the Avne Nazar was a prescient posek. And the same thing is true with a considerable number of his Choshen Mishpat. 
two votes. He realizes that insurance is here to stay and that you get a sense that he recognizes that nobody's going to do business without insurance and that we have to integrate this idea of insurance into all sorts of areas of Jewish commercial law because the real party in interest isn't the nominal party because the nominal party is insured. Yavne Nezer picks up on that development in commercial law and he wants to consider it regularly and all the time. And the same thing is true in a variety of other areas where he intuitively recognizes that um, changes that are taking place in commerce are deep changes and they're changes that will not be undone for a very long time. His conversations, his discussions about Shechita are the first series of Chuvot that clearly recognize the movement of Shochtim into slaughterhouses. The utter total abandonment of private Shechita and eventually the unionization of the Shochtim into an economic force that were intrinsic in the structure of the community. The idea that I might raise chickens in my backyard and when I wanted a chicken, I would slaughter my chicken. That's an idea that's existent in the Avne Nezer in the beginning. But by the time the Avne Nezer in his full-blown maturity, every single community has a slaughterhouse. And they enacted communal decrees essentially prohibiting private slaughter. And if I wanted to slaughter something, I had to bring it to the communal slaughterhouse, which became not just a source of a higher level of kashrut, because I could now much more tightly vet shoktim, but it also became a place of greater rabbinical control and some more politicking. And a certain amount even of unionization, where the Shochtim wanted working conditions and they worked together to make sure that they got the proper working conditions. All of these developments are essentially modern to him. But he sees with a great deal of prescience the idea that these developments are here to stay and they need to be grappled with and integrated into um, the reality around them. A recent article of, in Chakira noted how hard it was for Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, the Rav's father, to integrate these developments into his worldview of halacha and how difficult a time he gave the Shochtim and the Shochtim gave him. Not the Avne Nezer. The Avne Nezer is living in a more modern view of the world where it's obvious to him that if we have slaughterhouses, you know what we're going to have? A Shochtim's union. And if we're going to have a Shochtim's union, you know what else we're going to have? 
an element of price control because that's one of the things unions do. And not only will we have an element of price control, we'll have greater rabbinic supervision over the shoftim because in a single town, all the shechita will take place in one place, making it easier to supervise and certify and ensure a certain level of confidence. He well recognizes the upsides and the downsides of communal slaughter. He presciently predicts what we see in the United States in the year 2020. If I went to somebody's house for Friday night dinner and I looked up and said, oh, this chicken is very delicious. Where did you get it from? And they said, oh, I slaughter my own chickens in my backyard. Do you know what I would do? I think I would stop eating at that very moment, even if they were Shomer Mitzvot, because we live in a time and a place where, where most people don't slaughter, where even though we say, what we really mean nowadays is the overwhelming majority of people who work in a slaughterhouse are experts, and we have a natural reticence to let me slaughter chickens in my backyard. It makes us uncomfortable profoundly. Um, this idea is already well ensconced in the Avni Nezer by the time he's drawing to his end and he sees it very well. I want to add one other interesting development. It's clear when you read the Avni Nezer that he's beginning to develop what I call the rabbinic team. Um, he's not only writing Chuvot, he's handing them to members of his rabbinic courtyard to help edit and supervise. And Chuvot writing becomes a team effort. There are countless Chuvot in the Avde Nezer that is clear when you read them are actually written by his son and a few by his grandson. And they say something as follows. You asked my grandfather the following child and my grandfather outlined for me the answer and I'm filling in the answer and handing it to you and then I'm signing my name. But the Avne Nazar is publishing these in his own chuvot meaning the Avne Nezer is running a team. As far as I can tell, the Chassam Sofer did not run a team. And the Nodabihuda might have had a very small team of him and his son at the end of his life. But the modern rabbinic establishments, whether it's Rabbi Usher Weiss or Rabbi Yitzchak Yosef or before him, Rabbi Ovadji Yosef, we're running courtyards of Torah scholars. If you've ever been privileged to have a Shaila answered by the late great Ravavaji Yosef, you saw before you got to meet Ravavaji Yosef, you went through a team. This one checked out the facts, this one investigated the halacha, this one wrote a memo, this one proposed this, this one asked you about that. There was a whole 
courtyard before you got to Ravavaja Yosef. The Avne Nazar is running a courtyard of Torah scholars for the last 25 years of his life. He's got a team of Torah people working with him and for him, and they're all reviewing and writing about all sorts of things that he is thinking about. And indeed, you see some overlap from a group of halachic authorities who hung out with the Avni Nezer. I don't mean that in a colloquial sense, because they're all thinking about the same set of things. Levy Cooper has an article on great Hasidic Poskin. And, um, and he really notes that while there's a considerable number of Hasidic Poskin, the collection of Hasidic Poskin who made it out of the Hasidic world um, is much smaller than you might think. If you go through grand halachic works outside the Hasidic community to see who's widely cited but a member of the Hasidic community, it's a fairly small number. But the Avne Nezer is lock, stock, and barrel in that world, the same way as the Shulchan Harab is integral to the Mishnah Brewer. The Mishnah Brewer, when he routinely surveys that which comes before him, quotes the Shulchan Harab about as frequently as he quotes the Chaye Adam. The Avne Nezer is as widely quoted as any other halachic work of his generation may be more frequently than most in his generation. The Avne Nezer is not only a great Torah scholar in his time and place, he's just about the only Hasidic posek who makes it into the universal world of halacha in his time and in his place. I want to return now to that which we began and then end on that note. The Avne Nezer is so right. Torah is given to those people who do it with a smile on their face and with joy in their hearts. And Torah is not given wholeheartedly to those who treat the study of Torah as a yoke. Some mitzvot can sometimes be a yoke, but the study of Torah is distinctly not a yoke. The study of Torah is a joy, and Torah rewards people who not only are happy in their study of Torah, but joyful in their incessant learning. The Avne Nezer was a great halachic authority who was overwhelmingly joyful in his learning of Torah, he never surrendered to Torah. He won every battle and went from victory to victory. Thank you all very much. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. 
you don't miss a single episode. 